0: Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the words of those song, uh, that song that Christine and, and Sean shared with us, that we are uh, fully known by you, that there is no need for us to, to hide uh, the depth of what's in our heart, and yet you choose uh, to love us anyway. Uh, that even though we go astray, uh, you pursue us with your grace. So, Father, we pray now as we open your word uh, that you would um, enlighten our hearts to understand uh, what you want to communicate to us through it this morning. We thank You that Your Spirit works through it, that it is powerful, and we pray for Your Spirit uh, to work in our hearts here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. This morning's uh, Scripture passage is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to be reading uh, from, verses, uh, from chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem." I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure "'For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun.'" This is God's Word. This summer we've been looking uh, at these wisdom books in the Old Testament, and last week we uh, began looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Ecclesiastes is an incredibly important book, though many folks stay away from it when they read the Scriptures uh, because it's somewhat hard to understand what's going on. It's not a very easily understood book of the Bible, but nonetheless it is incredibly important. And it's hard to understand because it's a different type of wisdom. We look through the book of Proverbs, we read these short sayings, and our hearts are kind of warmed by them. But then you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, and it seems kind of uh, very down and in some ways very depressing. And that in some ways is the point, because the book of Ecclesiastes is what's considered to be speculative wisdom. And what that means is that it forces all of us to ask ultimate questions about life, to to confront head-on the difficult and ultimate questions that life presents to us day in and day out. And I actually think this book is really important for, for really two reasons. And the first is that the, the, the vast majority of our culture or, or Western culture today, these are the people that you and I rub shoulders with day in and day out. The vast majority of people that we interact with live with really no regard for God in their lives. They may not be antagonistic towards God, but they just don't live as if He exists. It doesn't affect their day in and day out. And these are, these are our friends, these are our co-workers, these are our family members who are not sitting beside you right now, and they're certainly not in, in any other church right now and have very in, little inclination to go to church whatsoever. And the reason for that is, is because they have constructed a life that lives in this world that pays very little to no attention to anything that is sacred or anything that is outside the physical realm or their regular day-to-day existence. The book of Ecclesiastes calls this under the sun living. Living. And what that means is that for these folks meaning fulfillment purpose existence identity all those things are sought out in life each day but with little to no regard for God at all. Now that sort of life sounds good to some but it is it is not as simple as it often sounds at face value. And that is because there is what Charles Taylor calls a haunting and what he means by that is that, that these folks are, are haunted by the reality of God and the transcendence that is all around them. They are, they're haunted by the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset or a, a rainbow in the sky on a sunny rainy day. They're haunted by, by feelings of love that cannot be easily quantifiable scientifically or by normal chemistry and things like that. They're haunted by the miracle of childbirth and the sadness that comes at a death. They're haunted by, by categories like good and evil, by ethical and unethical, by things like justice and injustice. And what the book of Ecclesiastes does is it gives voice— to all of these hauntings that life presents us. It, it, it shines a light on these things. It, it presents us with ultimate questions that must be answered in life. And what it does is it reveals to all that there are just as many tensions in unbelief as there are in belief. And what it does is it reveals the ultimate futility Of under the sun living. It shows how it all at the end of the day reduces it to meaninglessness or vanity or striving after the wind or futility. And I think that's why this book is really important. The second reason is this I think it's important because Christians, you and I, need to be reminded that there really is only one source in life. If you remember back uh, to John chapter 6, uh, Jesus is teaching thousands, and he begins to teach some hard sayings. And what the Gospels tell us is that as he taught these hard things, people kept leaving. It was too much for them. They kept just walking away until finally there's only a handful of Jesus' disciples left, and he looks at them and he says, are you guys going to go too? Are you going to walk away as well? And Peter, one of Peter's finest moments, says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life. You see, friends, Ecclesiastes is important because if you are like me, you tend to forget that. You tend to forget that Jesus Christ really is the only source of true life, all the things our hearts are longing for. Because if you are like me, there are times where you probably, if you were willing to admit it, where you probably go weary of the Christian life and you begin to wonder if things might just be simpler or easier if we just gave up on this God thing for a little while. We look at our friends and our coworkers, and we think that they just seem so happy and life just seems so much easier for them. After all, they get to sleep in on Sunday mornings. Doesn't that sound good sometimes? They're not burdened in their terms by, by living obediently to God and living for His purpose. And somehow and sometimes we fall into thinking that somehow that would be better. That we fall into thinking that somehow we can make our lives revolve around something else, whether it's our work or our achievement or our success. We think that we could somehow make our lives revolve around our enjoyment or our wealth or uh, the pleasures of this world rather than our faith. But when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we are reminded that all of those roads at the end of the day lead to emptiness. They lead to vanity, to futility. They are meaningless. Only in a life-giving relationship with God can the desires of our heart be truly fulfilled. So, how does Ecclesiastes do it? How does it… How does it make this argument throughout its pages? Well, Koheleth, or the preacher, who is our guide through this book, uh, goes on a wisdom experiment. If you were with us last week, we talked about this. And what he does is he takes his readers on several searches or tests in order to see if meaning and, be, and life can be found under the sun, if meaning or, to life can be found uh, living without regard to God whatsoever. And he goes on these testings and these experiments. And really, we see these testings and experiments every day with the people we rub shoulders with. James K.A. Smith said, Our neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. And that is what the preacher is really doing or shining a light on in his book. And and throughout the book, he goes on several tests. And we are told in our passage this morning about this one particular test that he is going to go on. It says this in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Charles Taylor says that there's really two ways that we can deal with with disenchantment and disillusionment that we run into every day in our world. And one is a really positive thing, and that is to rush out and to do something. What he means by that is when we're frustrated or disenchanted with our world, how do we react to it? Well, some rush out and do something. Let me do something to speak into the disillusionment that I feel. And really, that's what we discussed last week, because last week we looked at this search for achievement, and we saw that if we build our lives around achieving and succeeding, we are at the end of the day building our lives on a faulty foundation. We saw how things like, like chance and how time and death ultimately reduce all of our achievements and all our successes to meaninglessness. So if, if life can't be found in hard work, in, in rushing out and doing things, then the next logical step might be this idea of pleasure. Pleasure. If, if hard work isn't where life is found, then maybe it is found in just enjoying life. And that's what Taylor says is, is really the, the second reaction to disillusionment, to just simply distracting ourselves day in and day out with pleasures or numbing ourselves to these ultimate questions. Philosophers call this uh, the this is the idea of hedonism. It is it is the wholesale pursuit of pleasure. I want to do everything I can to maximize pleasure in my life and also avoid anything that might be painful or difficult in my life at all. And really, when you think about it, our culture is fertile ground for this sort of thinking. We live in a culture of consumerism, of, of individualism, of materialism, and there's all sorts of, of affluence that is all around us, and all those things lend itself well to this wholesale pursuit of pleasure. And what the preacher asks is, can life and meaning be found There. Can we construct a life on a life of enjoyment and pleasure? And so, he seeks that out to the extreme. We read about it first in verses 3 and then in verses 10. He says very plainly, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So, what is the question he's asking? The, the, The question he is asking is, does unlimited money and all the pleasures it can buy. Do those things equal ultimate satisfaction? And so the preacher, he tells us, engages in all sorts of wine, women, and song to the excess. And he says that that he does this in both really refined ways and also in more kind of unrefined, hedonistic ways. One preacher called this uh, the, the uptown approach to pleasure and the downtown approach to pleasure. Think of it as, as the Oprah Winfrey approach to pleasure and the Jerry Springer approach to pleasure. He explored both of those extremes and both of those realms, each and every pleasure imaginable. He sought it out to its extreme. But it's not all he did because he goes on and talks more about it. He talks about how he constructed for himself a paradise. Talks about it in verses 4 to 8. He says this in 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. And he goes on and talks about how he built gardens and parks. He, he planted vineyards. He had slaves. He was building uh, pools and forests. What is he saying by talking about all this? Well, what he's saying is he was very successful in constructing his own version of paradise. For him, paradise was not something that he looked forward to in the reality of heaven that God constructs for us. This is under the sun living, so he needs to construct his own paradise here on this earth and here in this life. Now, in some ways, it's hard for us to understand because we don't have all the means to do all these sorts of things, right? But, but, but think about some of the, the, the things that we observe in our culture. Now, now, I like HDTV just as much as the next guy. But next time you watch one of those shows on HGTV, look at some of the words that they use as they, they renovate their homes into these paradises. They use words like, This is my refuge this is my oasis. This is my paradise. You see, this is exactly what the preacher is doing, but he's doing it to the fullest extreme. This is the the million-dollar home in Malibu or, or in the south of France where you have a staff that waits on you hand and foot, and you have the means to get every single thing you want. And because of that, you don't really need God to construct a future paradise for you in heaven. You can be your own God under the sun. You can construct your own paradise. And this is why most people think that the author of the book of Ecclesiastes was King Solomon himself. Because if you look back at history, especially the history of the people of Israel, you'll see that Solomon was the most powerful king who reigned over the nation of Israel at its most powerful and prosperous moment. In fact, a lot of historians think that many of the things that Solomon built should be classified on the list of the ancient wonders of the world. It was so remarkable what he was able to build. So if anybody could really test this out, if anybody could really and truly engage in this test of pleasure, it was King Solomon himself. But at the end of this test, what becomes the conclusion? Well, we read about it in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Friends, think about, for a moment, all the ways that we all wind up lusting after these sorts of things, about how we all end up lusting after the pleasures of this world. Advertisers know it, the social media world knows all about it, but those lusts become insatiable. They can never ultimately be satisfied. And it's why Derek Kidner said this about hedonism. He said, The paradox of hedonism is this, that the more you search for it, the less you find it. It never quite delivers everything that it promises. So you're probably wondering, how, how does all this relate, or how does, how does the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately relate in to, to Solomon's conclusion about the meaninglessness of things like achievement and now pleasure? Well, what the gospel tells us is this. It tells us that Jesus, God the Son, left all of the pleasures, left all of the bliss of heaven— In order to become one of us, in doing so, he ushered in an upside down kingdom. He ushered in a way of thinking of reality that is different from the systems of this world. Because what the gospel tells us is that Jesus Christ willingly set aside all of it, all of the pleasures, all of the bliss, all of the joys of heaven, in order to become a suffering servant to take the punishment of God's wrath that you and I deserved. And when he did that, he redeemed all sorts of things. He redeemed us. He bought us back from the reality of sin and death. He saved us from the punishment that we deserved, from the just penalty that we deserved because of our rebellion and sin. But he also, in the process, redeems us from meaninglessness. meaninglessness. He redeems us from the futility and the vanity of so much of what we live in day in and day out. He redeems us from trying to find life in all sorts of other sources that will never ultimately provide life for us. And even in the process, he redeems for us pleasure. Instead, he refashions pleasure as a gift from God himself. And that if we use and experience pleasure within God's design, then Christians should be the ones that celebrate pleasure and enjoyment louder than everyone else. Because they are foretastes of the heavenly pleasure that we will receive in eternity. You see, even the preacher concluded this. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I know that there is nothing better for men to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. And this is the kicker. This is a gift from God. You see, God gives us pleasures as gifts to be enjoyed. But what Ecclesiastes reminds us is this that at the end of the day, those gifts cannot bear the weight of the ultimate. The only thing that can really bear the weight of the ultimate is another gift given to us by God, and that is the gift of a relationship, a redeeming, life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. He alone is the only one we can build our lives upon the only true source of meaning and fulfillment and joy in life. Let's pray.